You're listening to KHENLP 106.9 Salida. Next up, Truth Quest with Melody. Not long ago, how on a mountain in Idaho, in Idaho, I was living free. So sold off shotgun to a deputy. Don't shoot me down. Don't shoot me down. Don't shoot me down. Don't shoot me down. Got a wife and kids on Ruby Ridge. Please don't shoot me down. 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 Got a wife and kids on Ruby Ridge. Please don't shoot me down. My good dog Killed my boy My only son My pride and joy They shot my wife Dead on the floor Holding my baby In the cabin door Don't shoot me down Don't shoot me down Don't shoot me down Don't shoot me down Got a wife and kids On Ruby Ridge Please, Please don't, don't shoot me down. down Don't shoot me down Don't shoot me down Don't shoot me down Don't shoot me down Got a wife and kids On Ruby Ridge Please don't shoot me down And you want to go build a cabin in Idaho, in Idaho. If you live in free, boys don't sell no shotgun, no deputy. Don't shoot me down. Don't shoot me down. Don't shoot me down. Don't shoot me down. Got a wife and kids on Ruby Ridge, please. please don't shoot me down. 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 Got a wife and kids on Ruby Ridge, please don't shoot me down. That was Ruby Ridge with uh, my co-host playing uh, on his Bluegrass Conspiracy album, and that's my co-host Eric Carlstrom. And tonight uh, on Truth Quest... With Melody, uh, we're g- we have a uh, real popular guest. I can tell they've got they've loaded up the streaming tonight. And, uh, and this is Alan Watt, and this is K H E N L P one hundred six point nine Salida. And uh, I do the disclaimer that the um, they keep moving it around here. <laughs> hmm. Well. I'll read it when I see it again. Okay, and so ultimately, my my guest tonight is Alan Watt, who's a long-term researcher into the causative forces behind major changes in historical development. His background is that of Renaissance man with a background in three professions, plus having various books published in religions, philosophy, poetry, mainly under pseudonyms, 
for much of his life for main income, he is heavily involved in the music industry as a singer, songwriter, performer involved in folk music, blues, pop rock, and even classical. Also known for his session guitar work, he has played with some of the most well-known artists and groups. Born in Scotland, he watched the subtleties of politics and media as they guided the population of the UK covertly into an European amalgamation. He has been warning the North American people for some years now that the same process of amalgamation has been carried out. With historical documentation, he shows how cultures are created and altered by those in control, always to lead the people like sheep into the next pasture. Learn the true esoteric meanings of mystery religions from one who knows. Learn the science of religion, creation, domination, and the latest book trilogy, Cutting Through Volumes 1, 2, and 3, attempts to deprogram the reader from his or her indoctrination from accepting the world as presented. These books help stimulate the individual's mind into higher, truer perception. It's a 12-hour, these are 12-hour MP3s in history, religions, from ancient times to present to augment the books. And this is uh, Alan's current items are for sale on cuttingthroughthematrix.com and alansentinel.eu. Uh, are you there, Alan? Yes, I am. Okay, great. And Eric? Yes, I'm here. Okay, yeah. great. Well, I'm going to let and you... Welcome, Alan. To, uh, it's nice to have you back on the show. We had a very interesting interview uh, several months back, so I'm looking forward to the, to the follow-up. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on again. Yeah. And, and Alan is, is uh, coming from uh, north... He is, he is talking from northern Ontario. Again, to, for our listeners, he has a website called cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And um, Alan, if I could uh, kind of direct the beginning here, I know you're you're a musician. I also uh, am a musician, and uh, I've written songs over the years. I play guitar, banjo, and piano, and I and I write and sing as well. Uh, you have a quote in one of your articles called "Sentience in the Balance: Treasure or Trash, Your Choice," where you say music was such a powerful tool that Plato wanted it to be licensed that it has a powerful effect on people. And uh, if, if you can indulge uh, uh, listening to a song that it took me a long time to write, I was hoping we could listen to this song. It's called Ode to Jimmy, who is one of my boyhood friends. It's told in the song. Uh, but he died of a heroin overdose in 1969 at the age of 20. Mm -hmm. And this song is my attempt to understand uh, what happened to my childhood friend who was really, really quite a bright guy. And if we could listen to that and then talk about the, how music is used uh, as a way of controlling and influencing and manipulating people, I think that would be very interesting for, for our listeners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you hear that? Yeah. Jimmy was a tall and a skinny, funny-looking kid He and I was best friends in the second grade We was always cutting up and giving our favorite teacher fits But he was in that purple reader all the way By the time that we grew up to high school age He'd read most of Steinbeck's Writing poetry 
He was playing on the football team Picking folk songs with Ames and Dave and me Then one summer day my family moved out west I had to say goodbye to all my childhood friends But a few years later I set out to hitchhike in From Blackstaff back to Arlington There I found Jimmy looking all pale and weak and drawn He was singing lead down in a rock and roll band And I watched him stick a needle in his arm Like his hero, that other Jimmy was doing then Then I spent a few days at my favorite aunt and uncle's house Revisiting my second family They were all healthy and busy and living well He was high up in the CIA A little bit later I heard that Jimmy died OD'd on the bathroom floor The word was that he'd really tried To clean up his life and straighten out once more Well, those crazy times never made much sense to me The war, the drugs, and all the casualties It's only looking back now that finally I begin to see Things were not at all the way that they appeared to be It was war for drugs, and drugs for war It's all big profits for those Wall Street banks It was CI agents stealing heroin To our soldiers in Vietnam It was stuffing white powder from Laos into body bags They could hide 50 pounds inside each man That's how they shipped the stuff back to America How it ended up in Jimmy's veins Now I wonder if the ones who shipped those drugs Ever had to spend a day in jail Or if those Wall Street drug lords Ever lost a night of sleep or missed a meal But it seems the justice system here is broken now And it's the criminals that rule But I reckon they'll still have to face a higher law And a judge that can't be bought or fooled Gazing now into these mysteries How our lives are wagered, sold and spent But as these years go drifting by I sometimes miss my childhood friends Jimmy was a tall and a skinny, funny-looking kid 
He and I was best friends in the second grade We was always cutting up and giving our teacher fits But he was in that purple reader all the way Could you hear the words to that, Alan? Yes, I could, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the story might be a little bit familiar to you. Um, uh, I don't know when you started to learn about the bigger picture that was affecting uh, the, the culture around you, but do you have any comments about that whole, uh, that whole uh, issue? Yeah, I mean, I caught on very quickly um, to what was going on. Uh, even before, before I was 12, I knew... Suddenly everything changed. Um, Britain got all its culture dictated from the top, as Plato said a long, long time ago, thousands of years ago. He says that culture is always given out by those in authority and given down to the people below. Uh, They don't allow grassroots culture to come up in case it upsets their, their control over the public, so they authorize it from the top. And in Britain, we only had one television station for the whole of Britain at one time. That was the, the BBC, owned by the government. And like an explosion, the pop industry, followed by the rock industry, just blasted out uh, from the top, again, authorized. And I wondered why those in control uh, were going to such incredible lengths to give us this new type not just just of music, but it was everything that came with the music. It was a whole new lifestyle. It was um, uh, free love, as they called it, uh, promiscuity. Um, They brought the pill out to match it at the same time so that they wouldn't have the same problems they had when they tried it the first time. And that was in the Roaring Twenties. They tried exactly the same thing back then, you know. And there was too much fallout from unwanted pregnancies and uh, they didn't have the antibiotic to treat all the venereal diseases so they went back to the drawing board and came out with the with the 60s and uh, now, when the you drug say they can can you can you be more specific well you see we're, we're not we've never had what we think in the western world uh, a, a democracy or even a democratic input into anything uh, we were given the illusion that we do because we have non-governmental organizations that seem to speak for the people, organized groups. Some of them will even say they're non-political, but that's not true at all. They're funded by the big foundations, which are a front. Uh, They're heavily funded by the big foundations, which are nothing but a front for what we call in Britain the establishment, the very old families that actually run Britain and have since the days of the Norman invasion. Uh, Very old families, very wealthy, and they're above all parliamentary laws, and, and uh, politicians obey them but it's not just that you see culture itself is, a, is an ancient art the art of controlling culture and creating and managing culture because that's how you manage the public and as I say in the 60s when all of this blew out suddenly and they brought rock stars on or pop stars on at that time for interviews on the BBC and these guys were falling off their seats they were completely stoned and and it was treated like, isn't this uh, fun? Isn't this uh, a giggle? And they'd, they'd titter and, and giggle about it as though this was really naughty. So it was, it was obviously designed to, to get to the, the youth. The whole, the, whole, the whole scene was to get to the youth. 
and of course very few people understood what was really going on at the time um, they brought the hippie year out at the same time and uh, uh, once I got into the music industry itself I, I caught on very quickly that the whole, the whole system was completely managed in a sort of pyramid structure if you were writing anything at all it came down to the writers what was now in and what would not be allowed what was now out so, so there was a, a grapevine, very quick grapevine, and and he knew what they wanted, what kind of music they wanted, the song lyrics they wanted, and even what was politically correct at the time and what was incorrect, they'd tell you what to push, and everybody caught on to this. And I eventually, throughout the years, um, I I got in quickly to session work, although I was already already on stage. Um, I, would, I would get pulled into procession work or even writing songs for for some of the big artists who were strung out on drugs and they had contracts to fulfill because they had their labels and maybe three albums a year to, to put out or whatever they'd signed on for and they were unable to do it because they were generally young guys who thought they'd hit the big time and they lived like millionaires although they didn't have that in the bank account because everything was sort of... Uh, uh, rented and they were simply put in big houses and uh, given big fancy cars, chauffeur driven but technically they didn't own anything and they were so strung out they didn't realise this. For a young guy to have all of this suddenly, as much booze as you want, drugs as you want uh, women as you want it, it was like being in heaven and so they'd be strung out when it came time to, to fulfil their contracts and they'd call in people who could go in fast and write the songs uh, lay down the tracks even and um, and play, basically do the whole darn thing. And that's I've, how I've I. have got an article. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And that's how I, I I saw it very quickly, and I saw saw some of the big guys uh, really in, in a bad shape very very quickly very early on, uh, with heroin and all the other drugs they were taking at the time. Um, some of them were locked up for a while in mental institutions because they had drug induced schizophrenia. LSD uh, induced schizophrenia and uh, they'd, they'd keep them for a little while and bring them back quietly they didn't want the media in fact the media cooperated very well in all of this of course because they did not want to t they, they wanted see they wanted a whole culture to, to be completely different from the previous cultures because there was an old agenda behind this and that was the breakup of the, the family unit that was number one uh, they, they also wanted um uh, different relations between male and female and promiscuity uh, was the thing that had to be promoted and have a good time, fun, don't think of tomorrow uh, was being promoted so they, did, they never talked about the fallouts and there was massive fallouts uh, all over the western world because of the, the drugs that suddenly came on the market now when they brought LSD into Britain it, it, uh, I, I got in quickly to the history of it I wanted to know where this stuff came from and I found out it was discovered back in the 1930s uh, and it was basically laboratories that worked for the British government that had uh, found this out, uh, this particular drug and they tested it in the 50s and 60s, early 60s on troops and soldiers in the British army and then they tested it on even agents with an MI5 and MI6 and Peter Wright who was an MI6 wrote a book called Spy Catchers and he discusses that in there 
And interestingly enough, it was Victor Rothschild, who was one of the few Rothschilds who worked for the British um, uh, uh, military establishment in high-tech and, and bacterial viral warfare projects at Port and Down Institute uh, in England. Uh, he was in charge of this project for testing LSD. Well, when they, when they eventually released it on the public, uh, again promoting it from the top, from television, with the authority of the British government because they owned the station, um, garbage bags full of LSD were being tossed over university walls out of limousines for free. And, and that's literally how they were getting the whole thing started. These were, this stuff was made in, in laboratories, uh, basically owned by uh, the British government. Okay, I've got, a, I've got an article here, or a chapter out of a book by Dr. John Coleman, and the chapter is called The Beatles and the Aquarian Conspiracy. And he talks about uh, the fact that uh, um, the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations was behind pushing uh, the Beatles, and again, like you say, it was it was designed as a, as a social experiment that would, as as, the, as he says, would subject large population groups to brainwashing, of which they were not even aware. Yeah. He says the phenomenon of the Beatles was not a spontaneous rebellion by youth against the old social system. Instead, it was a carefully crafted plot to introduce by a conspiratorial body. Uh, which could not be identified, a highly destructive and divisive element into a large population targeted for change against its will. So, uh, um, yeah, and he says even even a lot of the words were, were not written by them. They were written by a guy named Theo Adorno. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, but Theo Adorno um, is, is quite an amazing man. You see, a lot of people... What you people don't realize is that when the Russian Revolution took place, uh, there was a schism between between the, the, Stal the, 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 the Marxist, uh, Leninist ones, and the Trotsky faction. And uh, eventually the Trotsky faction were brought over by the British Secret Service and employed by them. Uh, so the, the U.S. brought a lot of them in too, and they got eventually during World War II they came into the OSS, and Theodorno was one of them. He was a professor of of music and philosophies as well, uh, well read, well studied, and he wanted a new system worldwide, and he was employed by the, the secret services to help bring it about. Um, he was a friend of the Queen of England, and he he owned the rights of the Beatles' music right up until he died and I think it was in the either late 70s, early 80s he died and the music went up for sale Paul McCartney came over to, to the United States uh, and put a bid in for the rights of the music he wanted to buy them and uh, he was, he was uh, beat by Michael Jackson Michael Jackson now owns them so the Beatles never owned the, the songs well, we were sure fooled on that one, huh? Well, they, didn't they? Uh, didn't McCartney end up buying up a lot of other music after finding that out? He may have done. I know that to make up for the little um, fight they had with Michael Jackson between his agents and Jackson's agents, they did a song together called "Pals" or something or "Friends." Or, but uh, yeah, I know he bought other music after that. 
Yeah, I wanted to go ahead and read that disclaimer now, now that I found it. And I'm just going to the views expressed on this program are those of myself and, and are my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of KHAN staff, volunteers, and board of directors. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got some more words to read here from uh, Dr. John Coleman, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, uh, Alan. He says, without massive media hype and without almost around-the-clock coverage, the hippie beatnik rock drug cult would never have gotten off the ground. It would have remained a localized oddity. Mm-hmm. And so basically he's saying that uh, the media helped uh, put the spotlight on the Beatles and made them who they were. They were they were chosen, you might say, by the Tavistock Institute um, uh, to fulfill this mission. They were supposed to be the, the good boys that would, according to John Coleman, uh, they were the good boys that would uh, kind of soften up the West for uh, use of marijuana, where, whereas the uh, Rolling Stones, who was one of uh, my friend Jimmy's heroes, um, were the bad boys uh, who would uh, uh, model the use of harder drugs uh, and uh, even more satanic lyrics. Um, does that ring, uh, ring true to you? Well, there's no doubt that the Beatles came out of nowhere and they were heavily promoted by all media all of a sudden at the same time and whenever you see that you know there's coordination behind it and there's big money behind it and in the music business everyone is managed um, heavily managed uh, I've seen how they make stars I've seen them pick people out of lineups tell them the songs they're going to sing here's the outfit you're going to wear they'll show them drawings of their, of their gimmick or their pose or whatever and after those three or four songs, they're, they're back out again. Uh, you make a star. You, you, in this business, you make a star. You see. Do you want to get into what the Tavistock Institute is a little bit? Well, it, it goes even further back than the Tavistock Institute. Um, and the, really, when you, when you begin with the, um, the Darwinian era, uh, that was again. That even Darwin was made a star. In fact, uh, no one had heard his name before, and all the media suddenly built him up for about a year before his book was released. So everyone expected this genius to speak, and he was an instant success because people were already programmed to believe it. That's how you create a star. But his best friend was Sir, was Sir Thomas Huxley uh, of the Huxley family. Uh, Aldo Huxley, who did Brave New World, uh, was was his grandson. And, and Julian Huxley, who became UNESCO's leader for a united, a united culture through education for the United Nations, was, was his brother. So these all go back to, to Thomas Huxley, who took over championing uh, the Darwinian cause when Darwin died. And <coughs> these guys were all uh, aristocrats and members, uh, all related to royal families in Britain. And when you look, you go, it, Sir Thomas Huxley uh, got a group of people, young students together that were specially picked. H.G. Wells was one of them, and they called it the Red Tie School. Uh, they all wore red ties for revolution, and their idea was to start writing books that would fascinate young people along what became science fiction uh, and promoting cultural changes through their writings and, and the future projections. And H.G. Uh, Wells, as, as early as the 1880s, 1890s, was first writing books on the coming world where there'd be free love and the old bonding would be gone. You wouldn't have the bonding, it wouldn't be necessary anymore. And how this super state, this utopia, would be taking care of every individual. 
and he never stopped. He was a front man all along. Well, these characters eventually worked with other scientists, and uh, they, they had worked on history and culture. And everything that goes into the creation of a culture in any country, they had histories of every culture that ever existed. And eventually, that group blended with the Tavistock Institute, uh, which initially was a mental hospital trying advanced scientific techniques for its day. They were, they were using electrodes in the brain as far back as the 1940s, uh, 19, 1940s and 50s. Do you know when it began? Uh, it, it began at the turn of the 1900s. Uh, Tavistock was also used. Uh, they used um, the scientists that, had, as I said, are now blended with these cultural experts. They used uh, Tavistock to give all the British propaganda when the BBC first came out in World War One, and they were giving out. Uh, they found out that they could influence whole nations' behaviours um, by modifying their behaviour through through fantasy and fiction dramas that were serial dramas and you would tune in the next day at the same time because it always leave you with a cliffhanger where the hero was in trouble or whatever and everybody was running home to try and hear the next episode so your behavior was being modified already and along with the storylines came patriotism and fight for your country and, and they tried to get the recruiting level up through giving fantasy which worked very very well did it have an american or a russian um, german counterpart uh, yes, because in Germany, the, the Germans, uh, actually many of the people who now run Hollywood came from Germany and they left the 1930s uh, when Hitler came in. And uh, they ran, the, the German the German uh, movie industry was much bigger, in fact, than, than uh, the American industry right up until the 1930s, 40s. And so they led the world in propaganda and they were putting out a lot of uh, stuff to do with communism, uh, socialism, and so on through their movie uh, forms, and then came over to the U.S. and, and continued. <laughs> and is there a specific name tied to any of the um, institutes or uh, um, in institutions that were, do were doing these experiments? Or uh, There were many, many varied institutions and think tanks uh, all combined together. We know, for instance, that the RAND think tank is one of the biggest ones. Uh, the RAND org uh, organization is, is hand in glove with the CIA and has been for many, many decades. Uh, but there's many other institutions apart from them. If you look into the British system, that's where the key is, because in the late 1800s, they were out for world empire. And it had been a long-standing goal, even as far back as John Dee in the 16th century. Uh, he, wrote, he coined the term, the British Empire. And uh, so in the 1800s, you had people like Cecil Rhodes, uh, who became Lord Cecil Rhodes, uh, who was in uh, partnership with Rothschild, Baron Rothschild at the time. And they set up the Rhodes Foundation. And that basically was to create uh, scholarships on one level, scholarships to train world leaders from all countries who go back to their own countries and work towards a global governmental system. And uh, uh, they eventually merged with the Milner group, Lord Milner, Lord Alfred Milner, who was heavily involved in British intelligence always. And they had the Round Table Society, still, still on the go today, and they merged the Milner group with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation 
and now it's called the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Uh, they run the global structure. Every British Commonwealth country has its Institute for International Affairs, and they basically di dictate the global policy for the world. They drafted up, by the way, um, the amalgamation for the Americas and presented it to, to the Canadian government and the U.S. government, and they admitted that on television here under their own name for the first time. And they're also a non-governmental organization. Nobody, nobody elects them. And here they are drafting up laws and amalgamation rules which are being signed every year since 2005 till 2010 until it's complete. And the American branch, because they can't call it the Royal Institute for International Affairs, is called the Council on Foreign Relations. And do we have some Americans that are Rhodes Scholars? Oh, yeah, yeah, lots and lots of them. There's over 200 in your high bureaucracies in the federal government. The Rhodes Scholars? Yeah, wow. and, and so is Bill Clinton. Yeah. And I, 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 isn't Chris Christopherson one, too? Yeah, he, he is, although he went into the acting side of it, yeah. Okay. Um, and as far as the... I mean, I, does the MK Ultra do, does like the American branch of these um, um, mind control and I mean, because that's what you're really talking about mm -hmm. is mind control, and we have uh, American counterparts to the Tavistock, and it seems like a lot of it was possibly coming out of the Stanford area. Is that? Oh, oh, definitely. Stanford was a big, a big player in all of this. Um, but you also had every other university involved as well. In fact, last week, if you go to my site, I've got talks there where I read on some of the experiments they did on mind control, even constructing fake prisons within universities in the United States and, uh, and uh, depersonalizing the people, the volunteers. And uh, it was quite a... In fact, the Germans made a movie out of it. It's called The Experiment. You can get it in America, and it's, it's factual. It's, it's, they followed what happened in those experiments in the United States. I believe I did see that. It might even be on Google Video. Uh-huh. Um, and, and as far as, um, I mean, I w I've been on your site, and I've been going through some of your, uh, uh, I guess, you, did you call them blurbs? Yeah. Okay, yeah, they're, they're quite interesting talks that you, you get in and, and, and follow through some of the history. And uh, um, Melody, can you speak up? I okay. can hear you. Okay, I'm sorry here. I'll try to turn it up a little bit there. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's better. Okay. And so um, I, mean, I kind of like you to tie in some of the what's happened in the past that is going on in the present mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, which you do very well. And I'd kind of like you turn you loose on that if you'd like. <laughs> you know, in the past, in the, in the 1800s, they knew, because Britain is famous for doing statistics and projections, they, they ran an empire, not, not in 10-year plans and 20, but 100-year plans. And they knew that eventually the, the Industrial Revolution would be well over. Uh, they knew that they'd have uh, what they claimed would be an overpopulated uh, world. And they set out through the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and other foundations they set up. All these foundations are fronts for, for the, the establishment, the royalty, the ones who really run the country and all their cousins, there's thousands of them. And um, uh, they, 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 thought they were talking about ways, first of all, to stop people breeding. And, and it was so clever, really, because you'd think uh, that... Um, 
promoting promiscuity uh, would have the opposite effect. And initially in the 20s, when they tried the same project with with, uh, the Charleston dance, the miniskirt, they brought in cocaine into the booze cans and illicit booze, made it all very sexy and appealing to young, rebellious people. But they had all the fallout of of children. They didn't have abortion clinics. They didn't have the pill and so on. And so they they, they brought it all out again. They went back to the board and worked fervently to get um, a, a good contraceptive device or pill and bring make abortion out legal. And that way they take care of the overflow. But the idea, and this goes back to Sir Bert, uh, Lord Bertrand Russell, another member of the British elite, uh, who was given charge of experimental schools, where he had a free hand to do whatever he wanted to do, very much like Skinner in the United States and Pavlov in, in the Soviet Union. Whom, and they all know each other, by the way, because they traded their, their findings. And uh, Bertrand Russell was trying to promote pre-pubertal pu- um, sex between uh, children in these particular schools. The idea being that the more partners that they would have uh, before puberty, then after puberty, up to the age of 20, uh, that there's almost the chance of bonding with a particular person was almost zero. And so they had to promote promiscuity for that particular reason. And then once all of that was done, the state gradually, step by step, would come in and take over uh, through departments they would create, uh, they would take over the the right to procreate, to have offspring. And interestingly enough, it's now coming out in newspapers in Britain. There's even departments, you know, of, of, um, they don't call it procreation, but it basically means that set up already in the British uh, countries, the Commonwealth countries, and eventually you'll need permission to breed. We know that in Australia uh, they're putting through laws to to try and bring the same one child per family into Australians right now. We had a politician in Britain uh, two or three days ago got in uh, trouble, a conservative politician, by saying they should euthanize all the, the orphans in the orphanages uh, or, or the, and even sterilize single mums. That was another politician said that last week. Um, uh, they're going full steam ahead with this because they wanted to have a much, much smaller population in a post-industrial era. They did not need the population size anymore. And you must understand, we're talking about something that's beyond politics. The establishment don't get involved in politics. They make agendas. They give us fake politics and democracy but they've never changed their viewpoints from, as I say, the days of the feudal system. We are ruled by them. We exist to serve them. And when there's too many of us, just like too big of a herd, they start culling us off. They bring down our numbers. And during World War II, when World War II was still raging, in 1944, uh, King George set up an institution to study ways of bringing down the population much quicker because the war was not doing it. Uh, that same part of the agenda uh, was eventually taken up by the British government, high in, uh, levels of it, taken to the United States. And Mr. Kissinger, during Nixon's era, drafted up uh, the bill uh, and, and got Nixon to sign it and put it through that said that the number one enemy of the state was overpopulation and they'd have to bring it down by any and every means possible. And, and who are these people that are uh, directing this? These people are, are the people who literally own 
the resources and the wealth of the entire planet and they're very old families uh, as I say you, you can trace them back through the Norman invasion they, they, even today they own Europe the whole of Europe and they have vast lands and they even have tenant farmers Prince Charles still has tenant farmers they don't eat the rubbish we get fed they eat stuff that's not tampered with and um, and they're very old they're often attached to royalty and members of royalty or cousins and so on and there's lots of them they run the Ivy League schools in the US and Cambridge and Oxford etc in, in England uh, these are the well established families but they run their government their true governmental system through the big foundations when you understand how the Soviet system was run the Soviet means rule by council uh, or NGOs non-governmental organizations and the Soviet system set up its own non-governmental organizations and appointed the leaders of these people who, who pretended to speak on behalf of the people and demand things from the government which the government was only too happy to pass since it all arranged it together in the western world they set up institutions like, like Rockefeller Institute and so on uh, the Carnegie, the Ford and, and a myriad of other ones and they fund these organizations they set them up in fact and fund them and give them offices and pension plans and all they're not little tin can charity organizations and when anything happens they pretend to speak on behalf or demand on behalf of the public that this law or that law gets passed and the government goes ahead and does it it's, it's the same as the Soviet system and we must remember that that when um, Norman Dodds was doing the investigation for the Rees Commission into the big foundations and there's a book called Foundations, Their Power and Influence people should definitely read this When, where, when was Norman Dodds doing this? Uh, he was doing that I think in the 60s Okay And it was under the Reeves uh, Foundation he was appointed to, to investigate the, this power which they realized these big supposed charitable organizations multi-multi-billionaire organizations were, were behind because some of it didn't make sense to them uh, they were certainly anti-American uh, anti-family, anti-everything uh, that you'd imagine in fact they seemed more Soviet than anything and when he, he talked to the, to the chairman the CEO of the Ford Foundation uh, he was told this is our function is to eventually blend uh, seamlessly the Soviet system with the American system and is there evidence that's happening now? It's happened. It's already happened, okay. When Michael Gorbachev was the president of the Soviet Union, he gave a, his last speech to the Politburo that was published in the Western newspapers. Now, a man who worked for the Toronto Star as a foreign correspondent, uh, the, actually the Toronto Sun at the time, it was Eric Margolis. And people should look into the archives of the Toronto Sun and he published the speech given by Gorbachev and he said he said to them you'll hear that communism is dead shortly don't believe it he says we're only moving into the next phase we're expanding outwards worldwide now when you go into the history of communism lo and behold you find out that from the very beginning the big banks in the west the US and the Britain funded it from the, from the start and kept it going right through its whole entire system. Russia couldn't even feed itself. Canada 
in the U.S. fed Russia. Most of our grain was sold to, to the Soviet Union right up to the end. And, and the government of Canada was in charge of buying the grain and selling it to the Soviets. Uh, so we created, or the West created, this, this by the Hegelian dialectical process, what appeared to be a, a, a vast enemy. Because out of the technique of controlling opposites, you have a synthesis. And it's really the synthesis, the bringing to, together of the two, is called the third way that you wanted in the first place. That's what it was about. And they also managed to have a, a Cold War, which was a continuation right after World War II. Suddenly, uh, Uncle Joe, because Uncle Joe Stalin was called Uncle Joe, all during World War II by the same media, uh, the suddenly by the same media, uh, was called the Big Bad Bear. We needed an enemy. And, of course, during the, throughout the whole Cold War, our lifestyles changed. We were taxed to the hilt, and really the money was going on both sides to high-tech equipment which we used around this period to monitor everybody on the planet and control everybody on the planet. That's where the money was really going. Uh, both sides were working together at very high levels, unbeknownst to even agencies beneath them. And this began when? Uh, well, as I say, they, they set up, the, the, when the Bolshevik Revolution took over in 1917, the first revolution in Russia was a, was a socialist revolution in 1905. And uh, they had the beginnings of a parliamentary system for the first time. The Bolshevik took over with a coup, an overnight coup, uh, heavily funded again from the banks in the West. There's evident, plenty of evidence of that. Did they, I mean, that, did they, that sounds like it was very similar to in this time frame that the uh, Federal Reserve was set up here then. Yes, you're right. There's, there's no doubt everything was connected because they were going for a world governmental system and they had to do it step by step. And you do it primarily through wars because your government cannot be totalitarian to an extent without an enemy and to protect you from an enemy. And we went through the Cold War era uh, remember what Carl Quigley said, Professor Carl Quigley, and he was a man who picked students to be Rhodes Scholars, and he worked and, and advised presidents and so on, and gave lectures to high-level diplomats who were, who were going abroad. And Quigley said, you can get more done in five years of war in, on a social scale, meaning social change, than 50 years of peace. It is because that's the true function of war, to change all all conflicting societies. Government expands incredibly its powers and its bureaucracies and so on during times of war. And so sure enough, during the so-called Cold War, uh, you, had the, you had the CIA emerge with tremendous powers abroad. The FBI took over incredible powers back home, snooping in everyone. Uh, the beginning of the totalitarian system was already there. And, uh, and at the end of World War II, uh, they already had agreed uh, at high levels. In fact, before World War II started, um, they'd agreed to bring a war on which would make a united Europe uh, a must-be. It would have to happen. And Winston Churchill, uh, you should read his memoirs by his personal secretary, who's now a lord or a sir, and the, the, the book is called Fringes of Power. And in there is a little quip by Winston. He says, he says, he says that Winston... Um, 
to the public, he said, go and fight to save your culture and preserve your country. He said, but meanwhile, at his parties at night with his own peer group, he was saying this war is the best thing that ever happened because we'll get a united Europe out of this. So everything is well, done know, by deception. Yeah, um, I, I, we've had uh, Eustace Mullins on as, as a guest recently, and I've been uh, hearing the term British Israel more and more. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mullins and other many others uh, would put a slightly different spin on the power elite and say that it it might be primarily Jewish, and that the Bolshevik Revolution and some of these other wars would be part of a long-term Jewish plan for world domination. Mm-hmm. How would you kind of well, just what's your comment on that versus uh, the 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 high the high uh, uh, wealthy families of Britain? Well, there's, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that uh, even H.G. Wells, um, in his outline of history, a uh, two-volume set he wrote, laid out the list of the peoples who would be allowed to come into a new age. Uh, long before Hitler drafted up his inferior types and superior types, H.G. Wells had already done it for the British government. And he, but the only difference was H.G. Wells had said amongst those who will come through are those who have proven through the Darwinian method of being of having the survival uh, ability survival of the fittest uh, they will be brought through and he says we shall need the big Jewish uh, majority uh, with their banking system and our commercial system on our side uh, and it's no secret that um, because, because there was persecution going on in Russia pre-Soviet Russia uh, against Jews, uh, that was a, a fervent place to 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 recruit uh, from for communism, and uh, many of them absolutely, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, tended to be Jewish at the top, uh, a Jewish structure, and they, th- they they did believe a lot of them were getting led by the rabbis at the time that that this was um, this was in line with Judaism had, had nothing like Sovietism or communism had nothing um, it was, was not detrimental to Judaism they thought uh, at least in the early phases but but once again you can find this thing was definitely directed from Britain remember Britain's a master at looking at far-range projects even like India uh, they, they had India fighting each other all the different, there's many many small countries within India at one time it was Britain that had them unite eventually through conflict but they had them fighting for 50, 60, 70 years arming different sides and factions and having them all go at each other and, and so they look at long term projects to bring countries down and then take them over so um, the British Israel Foundation was set up again with approval of royalty uh, partly as a con to con Christians into thinking they were the lost tribes and get them on board to a world system they kept quoting parts in the Bible that said um, uh, well you shall be as uh, sand of the sea there will be thousands, millions of you ruling the world and as numerous as, as the stars in heaven and they kept saying well the Jews don't have enough numbers for that it must be us it was to get the Christians on board and lots of Christians joined the British Israel Association it's still pretty strong in some parts of the United States but that was really promoted from the British the high uh, secret services of the British government the Department of British Israel Foundation is the same 
office you'll find out if you check on them they have the same office and same office number as the, the World Federalist Society it's a World Federalist organization to join the world together what's a B'nai B'rith? thank you is that the B'nai B'rith is um, uh, it's, uh, appears to most people and this is how his propaganda goes um, it will pr- pretend to stand up for the rights of Jews who are being persecuted however every um, office they have and they have office blocks like towers uh, they're heavily funded again um, they're called lodges in the phone book if you look because they were chartered as a, as, as a Jewish wing of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry they're a Freemasonic group who use their Judaism as a front to get certain demands made that will affect the world for Freemasonry which is the uh, tail and which is the dog there do you think Freemasonry or Judaism there's, or different, the there's different spins on it uh, I do know that um, secret societies have gone back for thousands and thousands of years Rome had them, every group had them you get any group together even the military's got their own and always have had all militaries in all ages and we know that Herod started up a, a, a sect to fight early Christianity and authorized it uh, however Albert Pike himself who was called the Pope of Freemasonry said that he did not have to choose the Hebrew Bible to base their, their, their uh, belief on he said we could just as easily have picked Nimrod or some other great uh, leader so they, they chose the Bible simply because it was, it was, it was something that was familiar with the whole Western culture at that time. I've heard, uh, in fact, one talk show host that I've, I've been listening to a little bit lately has been, was been quoting uh, some things, and I, maybe Jim Mars is the one who said it, that all roads lead to Samaria. Mm-hmm. And is how much of what is taking place today being influenced by that? Uh, what's interesting is more like Babylon. Okay. Uh, to be honest with you, even the Rolling Stones came out with an album called um, Bridges to Babylon, one of their, one of their later ones, and a tour of Babylon, uh, the, the Babylonian tour. Uh, that became popular because Babylon was the seat of mystery religions and a world empire in its day. It was the commercial hub of the ancient world for a long, long time. And part of the mystery of Babylon was that if you were to go there as a visitor you would see a thousand different priestly sects and you'd you'd leave never knowing that they were all different parts of the same religion they used to call it the thousand faces of Isis and because because they knew that to run the world you run it by creating uh, many front organizations and side organizations that can confuse the onlooker uh, you, you, don't, you don't realize they're all working towards the same goal and uh, and they were even back then uh, Babylon ruled the ancient world financially um, so it, it's interesting that now what's very interesting today is that when the big corporations move out of the United States they're moving closer to that region they're building up Dubai into the most modern city in the planet um, and Halliburton moved there and many other companies are moving there the French uh, government uh, is, is setting up uh, a duplication of the Louvre 
in Dubai. I've heard a lot of those uh, buildings that they've been building there that are, you know, really quite some phenomenal um, buildings are empty. Yes, they're empty because it'll be the lead to eventually will move in because it's like, as I say, it's like a circle to them. Now, in their high religions at the top, they do claim that they have come down through the ages and and moved and created one empire after another and just move out to the next one. So technically, um, and there's no doubt, there's no doubt there has been a, a world revolution going on for many thousands of years. If you go back to ancient Egypt, and you, you see that Plato himself and many other uh, ones in the aristocracy of the Greek uh, people, they all trained in Egypt. They studied the mysteries and had their education in Egypt. And people like Pythagoras, uh, when he left, he was sent out to part of the Greek Empire. He went to Crotona, which uh, was in ancient Italy. And he set up his little group there. And Pythagoras himself was trying to foment revolution. Uh, he, was, he was bringing in male and female for the first time, uh, students from aristocratic families or noble families, and even, even training, grooming the females to be excellent brides who would help to manipulate the policies of the kings and so on in, in the areas that he'd marry them off to. And uh, eventually when the people found out, they burned down his school and they say he probably died with the school but he wasn't the only one Socrates did the same and they'd all studied in, in Egypt so whoever left Egypt came back to his own country or to wherever he was sent and was set up, set up a mystery school under the name of philosophy and uh, they would foment revolution so Egypt was fomenting world revolution wherever it went but some would say that Nimrod is Satan, wouldn't they? Uh, it's one of the names of Satan. See, Nimrod, if you understand the... If you understand the mythologies of Nimrod and his wife, uh, Semiramis, and the, the, the child, Minus, there's always the, the, the father-mother-child. However, he himself uh, was the same as Prometheus, was the same as, as Lucifer that was cast to earth and, and uh, fought the angels and when he was cast to earth he under mythology he built the castle the first castle and that was a symbol of the same people down through the eons they built these massive fortresses all across Europe when he went to Europe for instance but they also did the same across the Holy Land two massive castles and uh, in fact his wife Samiramis eventually um, her symbol is the castle um, don't we have a, a symbol of her here in America? Um, there's many symbols, uh, and the, the United States was the first openly, uh, using the term Freemasonic, a uh, society ever uh, shown to, to the world. And it's interesting, too, when you go back to the Founding Fathers and you read Benjamin Franklin and you read uh, Jefferson, both of them said that they hoped that this would be the nucleus, the beginning of a world federation, not just a federation of, of uh, states. I need to. Federation of world states. I need to break here just a second and say K H E N L P 106.9 Salida. This is Truth Quest.